Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott. He is a certified public accountant uh, based in Jamaica, and he's the author of a new book called 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect, Protect, and sow your money at any age. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Bruce. Thank you, Jordan. Happy to be here. Just Good give day. us a little bit of your background before you got to writing this book. So my background, I grew up in Jamaica. I traveled to the States a lot for business meetings. Um, I actually have quite a few family members living in the US. But in terms of the book, um, the genesis of the book really is out of persons asking me to give them uh, tips on their personal finances. I am a fairly well-known accounting figure in Jamaica, and people people make the assumption that a good accountant is supposed to be a good personal finance person, which is not necessarily the case, by the way, but um, through talking to persons and listening to their pain, um, persons in a sea of debt, not understanding basics about estate planning, investments, um, learning how to save. And many times persons would say to me, Bruce, the things that you're telling me to do to fix my money problems. If I had learned these things from I was in high school or college, I would not be in this mess today. And I heard that so many times, Jordan, I went to my alma mater high school and spoke to the principal and said, I want to start teaching this to, in Jamaica, we would say 12th and 13th grades. And I literally have a course that we run, run every term. And then I said, look, I can't be, I want this message to go out wider and faster. And so that's when the idea of the book was born. And so the book is everywhere. It's on all the platforms you can think of. I have four, four formats. I have audio, paperback, hard copy, and ebook. And when I say ebook, I don't just mean Kindle. It's ebook equivalent to just about any of the other distributors out there. So that's the genesis of the book. Great. All right, we're going to get into it in great detail. I just want to start with a little bit of your view on the current economic situation in the world and the banking crisis we've seen related to Silicon Valley Bank and now Credit Suisse being taken over. What is your view of where, where things are going in the banking system right now? Well, you know, I think in terms of, um, I think most persons would understand that one of the big drivers for um, some of the, the, the pain that is being experienced is governments across the world, even in Jamaica, pursuing a high interest rate policy as an attempt to stymie or dampen um, inflation um, in their respective countries. Um, in Jamaica itself, our inflation rate averaged 10, 11%, which is not normal. Typically, it's been single digits. And starting in the US, interest rates would ordinarily be um, lower than current rates. So to get this, so, so part of the huge challenge, you know, as would have been seen in the Silicon Valley situation, is the heavy basis points movements in um, their their product investment products, the, the stock, their assets that they have on their balance sheet. And so, with all of that said, it is a reminder for persons with their funds, their savings, the importance of keeping ahead of inflation. It's going to be difficult in this environment, but it just drives home the importance of personal financial planning. And I think it's a call to action for the average persons to stop and think about, you know, how they manage their funds, 
where they put their funds. Um, will they get a return that will at least match the inflation rate? Again, the rates that we're seeing now, you know, unless you go really long in terms of certain long-term investment products, you may not necessarily be able to neutralize the effect of a 10, 11 um, percent inflation rate. The, 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 the other thing that the situation is telling us here is the principle of diversification. And yes, there is protection for depositors through um, the, the, the deposit insurance scheme. We have a similar thing here in Jamaica, but it also is a reminder that, you know, we have a popular saying that we should not put all of our eggs in one, bas one basket. In the book, I talk about learning how to put your eggs in multiple baskets. So if persons have a concentration of risk where they probably had um, more than maybe 20, 15 percent of their funds in one physical entity, then this is a, a reminder that um, that principle of diversification is 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 important. And lastly, what I would say is um, there are risk management systems that would have been instituted in, in various institutions without necessarily pointing to the two institutions that are um, in some kind of distress now and that there are no perfect systems. What is important is if something goes wrong, there is a system of remediation and, 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 and trying to fix and the government's trying to reassure the public that um, they don't need to lose confidence in the financial system. But the biggest point, Jordan, that I'm really making is um, all that's happening in the world now is a reminder um, that as individuals, we need to find the time to learn about personal finance and to, you know, make, seek advice so that when these types of things happen, our underlying portfolios would have anticipated to some extent um, the fact that, you know, you don't need to put all your money in, in one location. And probably the most important point is that we need to take some risks, knowing that if we're very safe with savings products only, we would never um, be able to achieve wealth because the inflation is just going to eat into our, our base. Hopefully that was helpful. A lot of people are moving their money out of smaller regional banks into the big central banks because they're worried about banks failing. In fact, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, where they took in these huge deposits and then put them into long-term treasuries, which then fell in value when interest rates rose, is happening with many, many banks. So some people are worried this is going to be a, a much wider uh, banking uh, crisis because all the other banks in the same situation are going to have the same problem. That there's a run on these other banks and they have to sell their bonds at losses, as Silicon Valley did, that this will be the first of many. Is that your view of the banking system now? Well, um, very delicate <laughs> subject, um, Jordan. I, I would only add that I have confidence in the in the regulatory systems that they will try to understand systemically what went wrong and um, to do their best to help the customers who are at risk so that they probably don't have, um, I mean, clearly, you know, when persons are investing, there are risks that we take, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to comment too much. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan. Uh, it's a pretty delicate topic. Um, I think the regulators are going to solve it, but it won't be a, a, as much of a problem as people worry yeah, about. Yeah, I, 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 and solve don't necessarily mean a perfect solution. And, you know, the fact that there is, in fact, uh, ordinarily a system that protects depositors who have up to a certain amount. And I heard pronouncements about going beyond that in at, yes. least, one, in at least one case. I think that's an expression that um, the government seems to be sensitive to the fact that um, ordinary man on the street 
is is at risk. But I'm trying to shy away from okay. speaking too much about it. Very good. All right, you begin the, the, your book with the greatest financial investment you will ever make. What what is the greatest financial investment you'll ever make? Ah, so the greatest financial investment you ever make is an it, I alluded to it earlier, Jordan, when you asked me to comment generally on what what does it mean for the average person given the crisis that's taking place and i said it's an opportunity for individuals to pause and to find the time for their money so the greatest investment financial investment not absolutely greatest financial investment one will ever make is an investment in their minds in terms of understanding um personal finance in terms of their financial literacy i have an expression in the book where i talk about financial intelligence leads to financial independence and i can speak for myself on that and so many times you know persons will say i don't have the time to read a book on personal finance i don't have the time to stop and log into my 401k or my annuity account to check if it's growing at a rate that will position me to have enough money to invest to generate the income that i need for my personal finance so the return on the investment um in yourself, which is, I believe, the greatest investment you'll ever make. The return on that investment is the protection of the legacy of your family. Um, it's also allowing you to live the lifestyle that you want and ultimately get you to total financial freedom, which is one of the fundamental concepts in the book, which is discussed early. Total financial freedom is where you get to a point, Jordan, where you have accumulated enough assets where the assets are able to generate enough money to meet your needs and some of your wants and you use your time to do what you want to and you don't have to drag yourself to a job that you don't want to so long answer jordan the greatest financial investment you'll ever make is an investment in mine and indirectly an investment in your family's legacy and um takes time and it takes commitment why is finish not taught at high schools and colleges as much as you think it would be since it's so important? Ah, great question. Um, I believe they're, 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 the first reason is not anything that I believe in. Um, it's, it's, I'll only mention it because I've read it in my research. And um, it, it borders on conspiracy theories. So, you know what? I'll, I'll leave that one alone, <laughs> Jonathan. But I think that the first reason or one of the top reasons, Jordan, is I genuinely believe that the, our, our school leaders are already stretched to organize their, their, their timetables with the existing material that they have to cover. The curriculum is already packed. And, you know, I, I think the way how the world views a graduate, they look at the traditional subjects, your math grade, your science grade. And I'm not sure if the stakeholders who are looking on at the products of high schools and colleges are necessarily focusing on their personal financial knowledge. That's one. So already packed curriculum that creates a challenge for educators to find um, a slot. The second reason, probably not the most powerful, um, is that, you know, maybe the potential teachers don't feel credible enough to present the material because of the studies that show, for example, Charles Schwab, um, they had a survey that was done in a wealth index survey to 2019 that says 59% of Americans 
um, live from paycheck to paycheck, meaning if you were to miss one month's pay, it would cause significant distress. So if you have a baseline, a pool from which you're going to ask persons to, to teach this course, maybe um, the teachers may not feel credible enough to present um, the material. And, and maybe number three, um, Jordan, outside of the curriculum challenges and outside of the credibility challenges, it could also be that um, some of the leaders may not necessarily have a full perspective on how significant it is for graduates to be truly rounded. And that was one of the reasons why I went back to my high school. I think it is really tough for a young 20, well, 18, 17 for high school, early 20s for college to allow such young persons to enter such a complex world with so many pressures. I have a section in the book that I call Four Cultural Influences to Avoid. So you release these kids, my words, in such a complex world with all the consumerism, all the pressures, and they're not equipped to navigate. These are students, these are alumni of colleges and, and, and universities and high schools. And so I think the, the product, the output, that schools put into the world will definitely be enhanced if they are better able to manage their money. So I think part of it is educating Jordan, the leadership at uh, schools to yeah. to understand that um, your product, meaning your students, will will be far more rounded if you find that time. And for good news, good news, a piece of statistic that I quote in the book: um, twenty-one out of the fifty-two states, which is about forty percent. I think I saw this somewhere on NBC or CNBC was a source of high schools in the U.S. Um, are now making it mandatory yes. for, for graduates, whether as an outright course or it is um, subsumed in another course. So, so it's moving in the right direction. In the Caribbean, there's no such mandatory requirement, even though there are pockets of initiatives through the financial institutions. Okay. We, we have to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott. He's a CPA and author of a new book called 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect, and Sow Your Money at Any Age. You can find out more at his website, which is 14stepstofinancialfreedom.com. We'll be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's gonna be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is gonna be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not gonna be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. 
All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott. He is a CPA based in Jamaica and the author of a new book called 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect, and Sow Your Money at Any Age. You can find out more at his website, which is 14, spelled out one four, 14 Steps to FinancialFreedom.com. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. You talk about the four cultural influences to avoid let's go through those quickly what would be the first one yeah um before before i i I give the first one jordan if you don't mind i i want to put a little context to these four cultural influences yeah so so right so the, the book the book is making the argument and of course you know it's it's my perspective there are many books on personal finance but i i'm making a, a perspective and i'm arguing that if you are going to pursue uh, total financial freedom, which is the pinnacle, then you have to understand that you're literally metaphorically building a house. So in the book, I talk about the house of financial freedom. And I am arguing that this house is built on um, at least if one of the foundation pillars is the four cultural influences. So that's one of the, 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 the pillars, one of the, the bedrock um, that, that the house needs to be built on. And so that's the context. So if you miss these cultural influences, it's going to affect the foundation of your house. And so philosophically in the book, it says savings is a critical requirement of becoming financially free. And the four cultural influences serve to undermine or reduce person's ability to save money. And the first one is what I'm calling a culture of instant gratification. It's not new. Um, this, this culture has been around for a very long time. And it basically says, I want what I want now. I want what I want today. And I argue in the book that this mentality is the complete opposite of what is required to, to become financially free, which is deferred gratification. And deferred gratification leads you into the arms of saving money. And I have an illustration in the book where I say, you know, we need to learn to become like the bamboo tree. It looks like nothing is happening. You're saving and investing. You start up with $100 and it looks like it's not happening. And when the law of compound interest kicks in, you put that $140 per month over 30 years at 10%, it gets close to a million dollars. So we need to put instant gratification on the outside and embrace deferred gratification. So that's the cure for that cultural influence. The second cultural influence is what I'm calling a culture of how much is the monthly payment. So you look at a piece of furniture, you look at a car, and of course, you know, companies are marketing their products and services, and they're going to make those products and services look more affordable by giving you a relatively small monthly payment. So it says pay only $200 and you can drive out of here with this, or you can walk out of there with that. So what I argue is that when you look at the cumulative interest that you pay over long periods, then you are really leaking money. And so the cure for that is to ask yourself, can I shorten the monthly payment so I can shorten 
my interest that I pay out. And so that's another leak in terms of your ability to save money. And the third one we spoke about already, which is a culture of failing to teach money management skills in schools. I think when you unleash young people in a complex world, they don't have the skills, they're subsumed with all the advertising and so on. And so they, they, they don't manage well and they probably spend more than they earn. And number four is a culture of keeping up with the Joneses. And interestingly, in this section, I talk about something that I call Joneses disease. My, my expression, and Jones' disease is a feeling of jealousy or rivalry based on what we see others have. And with some of, or many of the social media platforms, it's not difficult for persons to be infected with Jones' disease. And really and truly, you know, it's really persons spending what they don't have, keeping up with their neighbors, gadgets, toys, competing with the schools that their kids, their neighbors' kids are going to. And I, I, I close that, the cure for Jones' disease is to let time pass, you go to somebody's amazing house and you feel that disease coming on you, give it some time, it will pass, and you know, practice a spirit of gratitude and be content in what you have. Very good, okay, those are the four cultural things we have to avoid. You have a whole chapter on diagnosing your financial health, but let, let's go right on to setting financial goals and becoming obsessive about achieving them. How can people set realistic financial goals if, as you say, the vast majority of people are living paycheck to paycheck. How can they set longer-term goals? So, great question, Jordan. So, the, the goal setting is linked first to the diagnosis of your financial health. And I talk about 10 financial health indicators, which I use to, you know, I, I use going to a, a general practitioner or a medical doctor as, as a, a metaphor. So, the doctor will test your blood sugar level, your PSA. And I'm arguing in the same way that you can be tested medically, how fit you are or how healthy you are, you can do that financially. And once you see the diagnosis of the 10 indicators, for example, one of the indicators is your debt to income ratio. In the US, a 43%, maybe up to 50 is considered okay. So if you look at all your monthly payments as a percentage of your gross income, like I have in the book with Mr. Golson or the Golsons, and they're at 71%, then you know that you're in a sea of debt. So if your debt to income ratio is way above the accepted average, that is a weak area. Just like the doctor would say you need to reduce your sugar intake because your sugar level is high, you need to reduce your debt intake. So the financial goals are linked to the weaknesses in your diagnosis. So a goal then, Jordan, using my debt example, is to say reduce all consumer debt within three years um, by 20,000, if that's the amount. And so persons can relate to this so simply. And then that now ties into how am I going to attack these financial goals? All of that has its roots in your ability to save money. Saving money is the seed. The farmer cannot eat the seed. You need that seed to be sown so you can attack your financial goals. You're saying the next step is to understand your money personality. So how do you do that and how does that affect your ability to uh, achieve your goals? Oh, Jordan, you're on fire. Awesome question. <laughs> so in the same way that the cultural influences, that at the end, really and truly, a lot of the time in this book is spent using different methods, metaphors, encouraging persons how to save money. So the four cultural influences will rob you of your ability to save money. I'm also arguing that 
if you don't understand your money personality, it will cause you to make silly decisions. So how do you understand your money personality? Um, I argue that your money personality is formed from, you know, your childhood experiences, experiences that you had when you were growing up with money. And in the book, I give the characteristics that would signal what somebody's money personality is. So, for example, savers like to hoard money. They like to feel a sense of security. And that would lead them to not want to invest money because if they take that saving and put it on, say, the stock market, they're going to feel vulnerable. So when you understand that your natural personality is one of the four personalities that I have, then it's for you to put the safeguards in to manage that money personality. So let's use that. I can't give all four because I don't think time will allow us. Right. So the four personalities are mogul. You have this feeling of impressing people. You know, you, you want to pay for everybody's bill. You're using your money to impress and to win friends and influence people. Saver, I alluded to earlier, you probably grew up with a lot of uncertainty around money. So you have a tendency to hoard. You don't want to invest. And then there's the ostrich. You don't face um, financial problems. You'd rather proverbially put your put your head, put your head in the proverbial in the proverbial sun. And then, of course, there's the investor which everybody needs to practice. You're not afraid to take risks. You're prepared to lose up to 10, 15, 20% of your money. So once you understand the personality type that you have, and I give the characteristics for each in the book, is for you to put your safeguards in so that you're not tripped over. We're not arguing. I'm not arguing to change your natural money personality overnight. I'm arguing that we need to be aware of our natural tendencies and to put in the safeguards. If you're a natural saver, you need to understand that you can't just put the money under the mattress, even though that's how you naturally feel. Inflation is going to eat down the value of your money. So savers need to learn to invest wisely. Go for the long run. Allow the market to do its thing. Volatility will annualize nicely for you. If you look at S&P index, for example, and you'll average the last 65 years or so average annual growth rate of 10%. I'm going to stop there, Jordan. <laughs> marriage. So... When you're marrying somebody, is it best to have the same kind of money personality of the four, or is it better to have different to have some balance? <laughs> wow, I I never thought of it that way. Um, I I would I I would say it depends on the two, right? I don't think it's good to have two savers naturally, but if you have two persons. Who have the natural money personality of savers that's not necessarily a bad thing right because you know they obviously are naturally attracted to each other for other reasons but if you're having that discussion around money and you both realize that you're savers i'm not saying that you should part absolutely not i'm just saying what i said earlier you need to find out the cure savers cannot afford just to save we need to learn how to invest wisely take risks wisely seek counsel seek advice so once you're applying the safeguards it almost doesn't matter what your personalities are. I wouldn't say that they have to match. What's more important is to be aware of each other's and to put the safeguards in. Very good. We're going to take another break. This awesome. is Jay Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott. He is a CPA based in Jamaica. He's just come out with a new book called 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect, and Sow Your Money at Any Age. And you can find out more at his website, 14 Steps to Financial Freedom.com. We'll be back after this. 
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott. He is a CPA based in Jamaica and is the author of a new book called 14 Steps to Financial Freedom. You can find out more at his website, 14stepstofinancialfreedom.com. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Thanks, Jordan. So one of the things we talked about is uh, debt and how, to, how, how people's debt loads are quite high. What are some things people can do to get their debt under better control? Debt under better control. One is to face the reality that you're probably facing a debt mountain. It is very natural for us to not face difficult problems. Scott Peck in his book, The Road Less Travel, spoke about this quite well when he talks about life being difficult. And he was a counselor for 25 years. And he, I never forget, he said, those patients who accept the pain of their situation usually go on to do better. So you ignore the debt, then it's going to be like an infected wound that may later need to be amputated. So the first thing to deal with a sea of debt is the behavioral side, the acknowledgement that, look, I have this problem. I can't avoid talking to the banks. I can't hide this from my spouse or my partner anymore. That's number one. The second thing is to find more money from your your lifestyle. So you need to go in the book. I talk about the TCI method, and really what that is 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 a methodology as to how you can save more money. Because if you're going to attack your debts, it means that you're going to have to cut back on your expenses and find additional sources of income so you can use that extra cash to attack 
the debt. Now, the TTCI method, very quickly, Jordan, is first you need to track your spending. That's the first T. Where is my money going? And then once you see where your money is going, then you need to say, what are my needs and what are my wants? You chop those wants out, probably. I also argue for leaving a little bit of the wants because you must live. You must try to enjoy life. You might need to move from a bigger house to a smaller house. That's going to give you stuff, right? And that's actually the C, the chop. Moving from a bigger house to a smaller house is a chop to the trim low-hanging fruits. If that's not giving you enough money to attack your debts, then you need to move to CHOP. You probably wanted to send your kid to a fancy private school. You may have to accept a community college. And again, the behavioral aspect comes in. And then the income. You probably already are living on bare bones. You've chopped, you've trimmed, and your expenses are not enough to give you the amount of money that you need to save to attack those debts. Then you need to look at your income. That's the I, multiple streams of income. Be careful there in terms of your stamina and overworking yourself. So the behavioral side, this is a real problem. Don't be like the ostrich. Then you need to find additional savings to attack the debt. And of course, once you do that, you can use a debt snowball method where you list all your smallest debts, you pay the smallest one, and then you use the savings from that to attack the next smallest one. If you're very numbers conscious, you don't have to attack the smallest one. You can attack the debt with the highest interest rate. Yes, you will, fact, in fact, save more money. But psychologically, it may be a little bit more challenging. So one, accept the, the mountain of debt. Two, you must find money to save. And number four, apply this, the, the snowball or the avalanche. And number four, you really need to get buying from your spouse or partner um, in, a, in a household situation, right? Because everybody <laughs> has to buy into the fact that we're going to have to cut back and may have to move house if you're battling with those decisions, it's going to be much harder to, to get out of debt. You, you have a section on should you invest if you have debts. People think if they've got debts, they should just put all their money to paying down the debts. They don't have any money to invest. How should people make that decision on investing uh, while they still have debt? Jordan, you're, you're, you're <laughs> asking some amazing questions. Expect nothing less, of course. So in the book, I deal with that. So I, de I have a hierarchy, right? So I'm arguing that if you have what I call high-cost debt. If you have credit card debt that averages, say, 16 17%, <laughs> then I am arguing that you ought not to be investing, right? Because the average investment, I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies and so on. I'm talking about the average, you know, index fund or mutual fund, you know, averages, again, let me quote the stats, last 65 years up to 2021, S&P index, um, grew annual average increase of about 10.5%. So if you use that as the benchmark, so if you're investing money, let's say you have extra cash of, I don't know, $10,000, and you invest that in an index fund, and say you average 10.5%, <clears throat> and you feel good about yourself because you're taught to invest, but that same person has $20,000 credit card debt paying 165 or 17%. That's not wise. Because you're, you're, you're leaking. You're, you're getting 10, but you're paying out 20. So you're losing like um, 9, 10%. So I argue in the book, if you have expensive debt like credit card and you find yourself with extra cash, take that extra cash and knock out that credit card. Because it's extremely unlikely that you're going to be able to invest that cash to beat credit card in, in, um, interest rate. However, I did make a concession. If you have what I call low-cost debt, Let's say you know you have mortgage debt and you don't have any other debt. You're probably paying four or five percent, maybe back in the day. But let's say it's four or five percent, and you can find an investment that will give you a nine, ten percent return. That opens the door for you to start investing, even though you have a low cost debt. But there is a rider. If 
you have to pay taxes from the return on investment and transaction fees. And what you thought was a good investment is now going to be less than the 4 or 5% return on your mortgage, then you're not ready. You should not really be investing. So yes, you can invest while in debt, but definitely if you have high cost debt, I can almost hands down say, no, it doesn't make sense. If you have low cost debt, then you can, as long as when you do the math, your returns that you're getting from the investment is higher than the cost that you're paying on your existing debt. On the investments, do you are a believer in active management or do you think indexing and passive income is the better way to go? <laughs> Jordan, you're on fire. So <laughs> in the book, I argue that the average person who walks the up and down the streets and Jack Bogle and um, Warren Buffett actually, um, I actually quote them on this, right? Their personal philosophy, which I agree with, the average person really ought to be more passive. And when I say passive, I'm, you can go passive with traditional actively managed mutual funds, but I think it's even better to go with an index type fund, um, you know, some S&P based fund or whatever other index you want to use because the management fees are a lot smaller because you're not actively managing, very low cost. You're using um, the index to guide you. It's fairly liquid. You can access that cash and you invest consistently for the long term. I think that's what the average person should do, right? Um, they don't have the time probably to do the analysis to be picking stocks because that takes a lot of skill, which I talk about in the book. That's what I believe. But if somebody is sophisticated enough, they have the time and the patience to do the analysis and to pick stocks, then 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 they could. But even then, I, 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 I personally don't recommend, but there are some persons who genuinely love the excitement of that, and there is a place for that. But I recommend generally that the average person should really be investing in index funds, low cost for the long run, and enjoy the compounding effect. What role should speculation play in a portfolio? For example, cryptocurrencies are very volatile. Mm -hmm. They've been moving up dramatically. Uh, so does having, I would call, gold and cryptocurrencies play a role in a typical portfolio? So in the book, I talk about, you know, your portfolio mix. And I use the classic 100 rule of 100, rule of 110. But really, just to answer the question more specifically, I believe things like crypto fall into not just aggressive or high risk. I think it's very aggressive and very high risk. And for that reason, I would say, so personally, I have a very small percentage of my portfolio in, in crypto, really, really tiny. Um, so if your risk appetite is such that you're prepared to deal with that sort of vulnerability, volatility, sorry, then you could probably inch up to maybe 5-10% of your portfolio. But I would say the average person should be very careful about the overall percentage just because of the volatility and the impact that it would have on, on your overall um, portfolio. So I'm basically saying that that's really for more sophisticated investors who have a wide enough portfolio that can take a big hit. I think the average person really ought to stick to the um, traditional sources, stocks, bonds. But if they want to double with very high risk, such as crypto, I think they should limit their exposure to really um, very, very small amounts. And we did qualify at the start of this call, right, that we're not giving financial advice. Right. For education only and empowerment. Correct. You also say that a lot of people don't really understand the power of compound interest. Just give us a sense of how powerful it is to have interest compounding over time. Yeah, Einstein says it one of the world, and it just carries the idea that if if you if you invest say one hundred and forty dollars over the next thirty years, 
at about 10%. I'm giving and taking on these numbers now, guys. It yep. will run, it will be about 800 to a million dollars. So what that means, a 22-year-old kid that leaves um, college and is investing, say, 15% of their income, a 35, 36, close to 40,000, give and take, average individual household income. That's about $450 a month over the next 30 years. That thing will grow to a million dollars. And that's what I talk about the bamboo tree earlier. You put that 450 in the first month, and that's like at a, maybe four or 5,000 in year one. It looks small, and then it grows. That's the power of compounding, right? But for it to work, you have to be consistent, you have to be patient, and you have to invest in a vehicle that will give you returns that are greater than savings accounts, and you can get those returns. More specifically, you need to be in a range of maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, which you can get from index funds, average annual, not necessarily ETR. So yeah, compounding is the simplicity of a small amount being invested over long periods at a reasonable rate of return, will grow to staggering sums. And young people, especially if you're listening to me, you start this. I have a character in the book called Marcia, left school at 22, consistently invested over 30 years, and she had accumulated a million dollars. By the time she was 52, she had a colleague who did the complete opposite, not the complete opposite, wasn't as good, and yet far less money invested. For people who want to keep money safe, uh, interest rates are still quite low. Where would it be places to keep savings where you need, need some liquidity, but you want to earn some kind of yield today? Um, so, you know, you have some of these online banks which give you relatively higher um, interest rates on your savings. But because you really just want this to be protected, I would say go to, you know, one of the bigger institutions and make sure you have some federal deposit insurance coverage. Um, that's, that's always good. Make sure you have a good debit, debit card that you can access those funds pretty quickly. Um, of course, you don't want to have too much cash. Three to six months emergency fund is good. Everything else over that, assuming that your debt is under control, you really should be should be investing. So you do need some cash. You do need liquidity. Money market instruments are good too. Those can be converted to cash quite easily, and you get a slightly higher rate of interest. So that that would be good. That would be a good. So yeah, there is a place for savings accounts, even though it pains my heart. But yes, there is a place because the interest rates are usually so low. But you need that liquidity. Final well-rated, um, maybe you want to talk to one of your financial advisors as to which bank or entity you need to put those, those liquid funds in. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answers Show. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott, author of 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect, and Sow Your Money at Any Age. You can find out more at his website, 14stepstofinancialfreedom.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. 
There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Bruce Scott, author of 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect, and Sow Your Money at Any Age. Website for the book is 14stepstofinancialfreedom.com. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Thanks, Jordan. You have a chapter on taxes. So people think today there's not that much they can do to reduce their taxes. The In the United States, anyway, the standard deduction has gone up a lot, so a lot of people are not doing uh, various kind of itemized deductions. What are some things people can do still to lower their taxes legally? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. So one of the points I make, in the book is to the extent that you can maximize your 401k match for those persons who have a employer-sponsored 401k or if you are even an individual doing your individual retirement account one way to reduce your tax expenses is to increase your um your your retirement contributions now there's a little writer there right because you may have other things that you're trying to sort out. You may be trying to figure out saving for a house, um, you know, saving for something that's really, really important to you in the short term. So my point here, assume that you have some of those big things under control. And I'm also saying that you don't have a high cost debt. But once you have your high cost debt under control, you really ought to be going for it in terms of maximizing the limits for your um, retirement um, account contributions. And the reason for that is that you do get a, uh, a tax break. So for, the, for the, the traditional IRA, you get a break when you contribute. So if you would ordinarily earn uh, for $5,000 a month, I'm just, just talking here, you put $1,000 towards your traditional IRA, you're going to get a tax break on the 1000 So in other words, you only pay tax on the 4000 If you go for the Roth, then you get the break later on. You don't get the break when you contribute today. But the point is that that is an amazing amount of saving. And because you're not paying the tax, you can leave that tax or you can make sure you save it and you can reinvest that amount of money. So increasing or starting your retirement account contributions is one way to um, save taxes. The other way will affect your risk appetite and that's the kind of um, investments that you have. If you go long-term with capital assets such as stocks, um, you know, certain bonds, then when you sell those things, the effective tax rate is much lower than what you earn on your salary. We call that earned income. But but those investments, you have to watch and match back to your, your, your risk appetite. But generally speaking, if you hold things like stocks for the long run over a year, and you sell, you're going to enjoy much, generally speaking, a much, much, much lower tax rate. So I'm answering the question by saying max out your pension contributions to your um, 401k or your individual or your IRAs. Watch your investment portfolio. Obviously, you get breaks from donations and interest on mortgage expenses, clearly depending on whether you 
annualized or not. Again, we're not giving tax advice here. We're just giving principles. Yeah. You end the book with what you call sow your money and yes. you start with love thy neighbor. What does that, that mean in this context? Awesome. So sow your money is the last section of the book and deliberately placed towards the end because it carries the idea that now you have excess. You have learned how to save and invest and you have excess. You're taking care of your family, but I'm arguing very strongly and this is my favorite part of the book that we have a responsibility to help those in need uh, you know just using as a reference point some persons went to great jewish rabbi uh jesus and asked him who is his who is their neighbor and he gave the example of the good samaritan man was bleeding lying dying on the dark lonely country road and he said the man that stopped to help him not the ones that passed is the good Samaritan, he helped his neighbor. So I'm arguing that we need to be more aware that our responsibility, having become financially free or partially financially free, is to help others to be financially free. True financial freedom, I'm arguing, comes when we use our wealth, even if you're not as rich as the richest person in the world, but you have excess, that freedom, what I'm calling financial freedom, includes helping others to be free. And the second point I'm making there is that we don't even have to be asked by the persons in need. The man that was bleeding in that stir with the Good Samaritan, he could not speak. His lifeless body shouted for help and that compassionate heart with pocket went and ministered. And there are many opportunities to do that. Inner city kids who don't have the opportunities like others, they might need tuition, they need lunch money, they need transportation. You know, poor, um, you know, indigent person at home, probably is a widow. It's obvious that our kids are not around, probably had no children. Those are opportunities for us to come alongside and to sow. And I use the word sow because it carries the idea that you are leaving a deposit in that person's life. And then that sowing will become a mighty fruit that gives benefit to that person. And then when that person remembers your goodness, then they continue to sow. That produces other fruit. And if we could do that, we would, our government can't solve all the problems. But if we can just help one person with our excess, then we will definitely be sowing our money and it would be a much better world. At the end, you talk about living the good life. So is that giving back as part of it? But what do you mean by living the good life based on all the financial advice in the book? So the good life is saying that we need a balance, right? So yes, I'm going to be sowing. I'm going to help in others. But I also, it, the book also says, the great wisdom literature says, you can't take what you have with you. And so at the end of the day, is for us to also enjoy the fruit of our labor. I'm quoting the great um, ancient literature, Solomon. So we need a balance, right? You never see a U-Haul behind a, 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 a hearse or a procession going to the cemetery. And so it carries the idea that we need to learn to enjoy our money. In the book, I talk about fun money. We only have one life to live, but, but there's a contrast. We need to balance by helping others while we are enjoying ourselves. And you're saying that's difficult for some people to do. They can't enjoy it, or they're not. A lot of people just keep it for themselves and don't really give. This is new to a lot of people, right? And that's true. And, and John, and I'm arguing very strongly that for any person who might have that natural tendency, and we're not judging anyone, right? Because sometimes our upbringing and maybe what we see around us as projection, and we project those behaviors. But this book is an opportunity. I'm challenging persons here to stop and test it, try it. There's a great expression that says it's more blessed to give than to receive. It is counterintuitive. But if you try it, the joy that you will get from seeing the smile on somebody's face by you giving them something that would mean a little less to you 
there the, the 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 joy that from that is superior at least in my case than any benefit that i could get if i'd use that money so it's really an understanding that yes mathematically speaking if i have a thousand dollars and i give somebody two hundred dollars i'm left with eight hundred but i'm arguing that when you come to appreciate that what that two hundred dollars will do for that family and you can still survive with your eight hundred and you see the benefits somebody going to school somebody got medical health care the joy from seeing the impact of the 200 is going to make you a gazillion times happier than if you kept that $200 for yourself. Indeed. As we come to a close here, what difference would it make in people's lives if they follow and implement the 14 steps to financial freedom? What, as opposed to what they're doing now, if they actually implemented everything you talk about in the book, what difference would it make in their lives? The difference is that one, first thing it will do is give them a, 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 a clarity in their minds that it is possible to get to total financial freedom and they don't have to be earning $150,000. They don't have to be earning earning $100,000. In the book, I gave the example of a school bus driver who made close to $40,000 a year and was a millionaire by 60. So the book will give inspiration. It will say, if the school bus driver can do it, I can. It, it will give inspiration. Bruce Scott, who grew up in an inner city, tough inner city community, can do it, went on to be a partner in a big four firm and is financially free if he can he can, and i give some of my stories if he can do it i can do it but it's not just inspiration it's also information the 14 steps is split across how to grow your money nine steps so persons who have never had a clue in a systematic way how to do that it will be right there but you grow your money you need to protect it you need to make sure you pass it on to your loved ones i talk about estate planning and then we just talk about so so i would say it is inspiring as well as it is empowering and lastly it should be entertaining there are some jokes in it it should be giving person a chance to to take a little break some jamaican dialect and 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 so i think persons will leave with a sense of inspiration but also a sense of direction i now have a path that can get me to financial freedom if i'm disciplined and i don't have to earn i'm going to repeat that point i don't have to make a six-figure salary especially for the high school college kids if you start early this book will give you the confidence that you can get to financial freedom and you can give your day job up if you want to long before normal retirement age, which is 60 plus years in the United States. Very good. Well, we've learned a lot. Thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Bruce Scott, a CPA based in Jamaica. His new book is called 14 Steps to Financial Freedom, Simple Strategies to Grow, Protect and Sow Your Money at Any Age. And you can find out more at his website, 14 Steps to financialfreedom.com. Thanks so much, Bruce. I think we learned a lot in the last hour. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks to your listeners. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.